BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller? I had to buy three identical sweaters to get the fourth free. Ooh, you got fleeced. Next caller, what's your deal? I paid for 20 tanning sessions, but had to use them in a month. Now I'm orange. Ooh, you got burned. Next caller. I traded in my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24+. Plus. Hmm, how's that bad? I got to choose from their best plans. So what went wrong? Oh, nothing went wrong. And you're calling to... To request a song? You want a song. Of course. The choice is yours. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 Plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hi, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I feel the earth move under my feet. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And our regular host, Jonathan Strickland, is not with us today. He uh, is having a beautiful vacation. Yes, uh, hopefully not along a fault line anywhere, which introduces today's topic, which is earthquakes. We, After we did our super volcano episode, we received a couple messages, one from Jacob via Twitter and one from Matt via Facebook, who both wrote in to request an episode about another big disaster, earthquakes. Yeah, and not just about what earthquakes are and how they work, of course, but seeing as this is forward thinking, uh, what are we going to do about them in the future? Will we ever be able to predict earthquakes and understand what causes them, when and where they're going to happen, and how to stop them and protect against them. Oh, sure, and especially that protect, protect against them thing, because even if we can't predict them, how can we prepare ourselves better for them? Sure, and I'm sure one of the reasons people want to know about earthquakes right around now is the grand trailer for this movie that's out this summer called San Andreas. Yeah, yeah, that came out uh, on May 29th, I believe. It uh, features The Rock. Right. It's not a Grand Theft Auto movie. It is a movie about a big earthquake in the tradition of other movies about big disasters where stuff falls over. Yeah, lots of stuff falls over, as it turns out. I have not seen this movie. I'm probably not going to, but I got to be honest. I saw the trailer when I was in the theater uh, watching Mad Max Fury Road, and the, I, it was hilarious. I 
I have to say that I laughed through that entire trailer and I'm not I feel I felt kind of bad about it at the time because although I knew that those digital people were fine like like no digital people were harmed in the making of those digital effects shots uh earthquakes are very serious matters of course Right they're a terrifying and unpredictable attack upon our placid urban lives and and a lot of times they they seem to come out of nowhere and they can kill thousands of people and so, of course, earthquakes are worth understanding to figure out uh, not just for the pure science of it, but to save lives. Oh, of course. Yeah. And and the thing, of course, about the ground that we stand on is that it is not solid at all. Well, I mean, I'd say it is solid, it's but semi-solid. it's not <laughs> it's, it's not uh, it's not what stationary should we yes, say yes yes and not just in the way that that planet earth is like a spaceship uh the, the ground is always moving earth's crust is made up of continent-sized slabs of rock called tectonic plates which are constantly uh moving and rubbing up against each other or pushing over or under one another or, or moving slightly apart and that's fine that's great that's <laughs> i that's, don't know if that's fine <laughs> Yeah, sure, it's fine. Well, it's normally on a day-to-day basis, it's usually fine. Um, but sometimes those those edges, those faults, can crack or slip against each other abruptly, causing these very powerful vibrations to shake the edges of those plates in in patterns radiating outward from the point of that slippery origin. Um, and th- those vibrations, aka seismic waves, are what we feel as earthquakes. Yeah, I was trying to think of a good analogy for how earthquakes are created in, in a at a scale that we can experiment with. And I think this sort of works. If you put on some rubber-soled shoes and then try to walk along on, say, like a hardwood floor or like a basketball gym floor mm-hmm. without lifting your feet, just scooting your shoes along. Mm-hmm. What you'll probably notice uh, if your shoe scooting experience is anything like mine is that for a certain length of the slide, the shoe will move kind of smoothly, but every now and then it'll sort of get caught for a second. The forward momentum will briefly pause and then you'll experience a sort of sudden jolt forward, sometimes accompanied by the classic vibratory sounds of scooting. Scoot. <laughs> And these vibrations you can think of as being kind of analogous to what's happening when these plates are scooting against each other. Uh, sure. And and researchers think that it's a, it's a buildup of potential energy over periods of time that are not to our knowledge predictable yet. Um, but, but we'll address that question later in this episode. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, but but earthquakes happen Constantly. All uh, the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. The U.S. Geological Survey estimates that as many as 1.3 million earthquakes happen every year. And that's just the ones that are over a 2.0 on the Richter scale, which is the point at which humans can feel them. Right. And then it's not even just the primary effects of the vibration of the ground of the earthquake, right? Earthquakes have lots of secondary causes that can become disasters on their own. Oh, of course. There's a tsunami and avalanches and landslides and liquefaction, which is a thing where solid ground starts acting like a liquid, which... Ooh. Uh, and and flooding and, you know, the collapse of human made structures and the lack of resources and the aftermath that ensues and uh, all of these terrible things. Of course. Yeah. So we have very good reason to want to understand how earthquakes work and what we can do about them. So so I figured we should start by going back a little bit mm-hmm. and looking at how our understanding of earthquakes developed over time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what? I bet people had some interesting ideas about earthquakes in ancient times. Well, you'd be right. Uh, so the ancient world, of course, experienced plenty of earthquakes, just as many earthquakes as we do today. Mm-hmm. And without the scientific framework to explain them, they came up with some pretty weird and sometimes funny explanations. <laughs> Uh, so religious, spiritual, magical explanations were extremely common all over the world, the West and the East. Mm-hmm. People sort of explained uh, earthquakes as often as divine punishments or divine portents. Gods were either like giving a warning or were angry and, and issuing punishment. I found this one funny example of uh, both the magical explanations given by the ancients and some of the practical explanations. And these are chronicled in the writings of the Roman historian Ammianus Marcellinus, who is a soldier by trade, and he lived during the 4th century CE, and he, he wrote a surviving history at the time. 
and and he he has a little discourse on earthquakes and what he says is that when you're talking about earthquakes quote in all priestly ceremonies whether ritual or pontifical care is taken not at such times to name one god more than another for fear of impiety since it is quite uncertain which god causes these visitations <laughs> I love yeah. that they didn't want to. They didn't want to assign blame without all the facts. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's good. I mean, you know, that's covering your bases. I, I approve of the hypothesis format of finding knowledge. Sure, and then of course you had sort of uh, spiritual or supernatural explanations in in the East as well. So, like some ancient Chinese explanations seem to have. Red earthquakes, again, as divine punishments or portents. But to continue with what our historian uh, Marcellinus had to say, this was great because he also chronicled what some of the dominant practical explanations of the day were. So it wasn't that everybody just had this religious explanation. There were also the ancient natural philosophers who were like, no, let's figure this out. Surely something's going on under the earth. I mean, Aristotle surely had something to say about it. Oh, yes. So uh, quoting again from Marcellinus and all of these quotes from Marcellinus are from the C.D. Yonge translation in the English. But as the various opinions among which Aristotle wavers and hesitates suggest, Earthquakes are engendered either in small caverns under the earth because of the waters pouring through them with a more rapid motion than usual, or, as Anaxagoras affirms, they arise from the force of wind penetrating the lower parts of the earth, which, when they have got down to the encrusted solid mass, finding no vent holes, (laughs) shake those portions in their solid state, into which they have got entrance when in a state of solution. And this is corroborated by the observation that at such times no breezes of wind are felt by us above the ground because the winds are occupied in the lowest recesses of the earth. Oh, that's delightful. That is that is so delightfully incorrect. Yeah. Uh, I, I adore that. Yeah. So I think the idea that was being propagated at the time by Aristotle and some of the other, well, not at the time by Aristotle, but had previously been propagated right. by Aristotle and then continued to be believed by many people was something having to do with the exchange of gases like wind and evaporation under the earth. And mm-hmm. sometimes when like gases or evaporating uh Vapors would get trapped under the earth. Sometimes they'd be released in a big burst. Uh, sure, sure. Although I suppose it is interesting that they were thinking about uh, liquids and the motion that propagates in liquids because earthquakes are, in fact, caused by by waves of energy, which sure. uh, at their time was analogous. So, yeah, analogous. Whichever, yes, that thing. Yeah, but uh, but I'm sure they probably weren't quite thinking yet of the idea of propagation of waves through rock, which must have seemed kind impossible. Of, you know, yeah, yeah sure, sure. <laughs> so, as with many subject areas, uh, see cosmology and physics and plenty of things, Aristotle's ideas held sway for a long, long time uh, in Europe and in the Islamic world, despite the fact that they were super, super wrong. <laughs> um, like, don't get me wrong about Aristotle. I'm, I'm not saying he was stupid. He was obviously a super smart guy of the oh, ancient yeah. world. I guess just everybody must have assumed he was right about everything. That's what they did for yeah. a long time. Uh, like, it's kind of depressing. It's kind of funny. If, if you've never done this, like, look up what... Galileo overthrew about Aristotelian physics and it'll just kind of make you wonder like how did people miss this for so long it <laughs> seemed so easy to figure out yeah yeah but anyway Aristotle's ideas about earthquakes held were very popular uh, until the early modern period in Europe and then some other physical explanations for earthquakes began to take hold in some circles like uh, explanations involving fire and explosive properties hmm uh, just one example, like what if iron is reacting with sulfur deep under the ground and this explosive chemical reaction is causing earthquakes? Okay. Even kind of makes sense because you can see like, okay, earthquakes sometimes are, are happening around fault lines, which they didn't know about then. But uh, Sure, but, be... but around volcanoes, there which go. they certainly knew about. Yeah, bingo. Uh, and that volcanoes have this explosive fiery element. Mm-hmm. Eventually, however, we started to get some more correct ideas about seismology. And according to a brief history of seismology given by Duncan Carr Agnew, which was my source on most of this historical stuff, 
one of the main events that seemed to trigger the modern era of earthquake research was the Lisbon earthquake of 1755, which was huge. Oh, yeah. And had crazy effects throughout Europe, including causing uh, seiches or seiches, I believe it's seiches, mm-hmm. uh, which are standing waves in these enclosed bodies of water. So if you've ever seen standing waves in water, it's where instead of the waves propagating along the surface, they sort of bob back and forth. It looks really crazy. All right. Especially (laughs) if you were going to see that in like the lake. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or I don't know. I'm picturing the scene in Jurassic Park where where the the cup of water is just going. No, but 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 not like that. Oh, if it just continually bounce back and forth. Weird bouncy way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Do not want. Creepy. So this. uh, So anyway, this event caused some writers at the time to sort of see the effects of an earthquake as pressure waves propagating outward from a source through the elasticity of the rock in the Earth's crust, uh, kind of like sound emanates through a solid medium. Mm -hmm. And from this time through the 1800s, people began to study earthquakes more scientifically. But you can kind of understand the difficulty they would have, because think about it. How do you study earthquakes? You can't, like, cause an earthquake, especially not with the technology of the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And you can't predict when they're going to happen to set so, up your equipment. Right. So it was very much an exercise in sort of gathering what data you could after the event and then trying to sort of do backwards experiments by analyzing the data you had available to you, which is very difficult to do. Oh, sure. Uh, especially, right, given the technology of the time and the lack of electricity, let alone computers and all of that stuff. Although the first step, I would say, was around the mid-1800s when one Robert Mallet actually coined the term seismology. Yeah, and he also sort of brought a quantitative approach to studying wave propagation through the Earth. He was big into looking at maps and collecting all kinds of data and analyzing it quantitatively. But then, of course, one of the big things that's led to the modern era of studying wave propagation through the Earth has been the development of seismometers or seismometers, as (laughs) one might say for some reason. Uh, yeah, th- those being um, machines that detect seismic waves, uh, seismographs, which I think is the more frequently used term in 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 popular culture at any rate, are mm-hmm. are seismometers that record those waves, and many seismometers are in fact seismographs. Yeah, it would obviously not be very helpful to detect waves and then forget about them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no. Um, and, and actually there's historical records of these from, from way before the 1800s. Yeah, I think we don't fully understand exactly everything about this ancient one, but the idea is that the first mechanical seismometer was created in ancient China by the Han Chinese inventor and general all-purpose genius Chang Heng oh, hmm. in the year 132 CE. Oh, my goodness. And supposedly this device could tell the operator from which direction the vibrations of an earthquake originated. And even on at least one occasion, anecdotally, it recorded an earthquake that humans could not feel. So it was like too faint for humans to know there had been one. Uh But the machine said, hey, there's an earthquake over here. Cool. Uh, During that wave of interest wave um, in the in the 1800s, um, several mechanical models were were produced and kind of refined. Um, By 1903, we saw the first electromagnetic seismometer and then uh, digital equipment and and data processing technology started to be developed around the 1970s or so we could probably do an entire like series of episodes about seismometer technology and maybe that's a thing I'll poke Jonathan and see if he wants to do some episodes about that about that on tech stuff oh, yeah. uh, because there is so much out there and it's it's kind of fascinating. Maybe it would be better in video because it's a whole lot of like pictures of pendulums working in different ways and spring-loaded things. Dude, I'll listen to Jonathan talk about some pendulums. I bet he'd do a good job. I bet he would. Okay, no, wait. How about some related technology? What about technology to m- measure those secondary effects of earthquakes that we were talking about earlier? Uh, yeah, there's some, uh, I think within the past few decades, um, a device called a sunometer. I think I'm saying that correctly. Tsunometer? Tsunometer? Hmm. Either way. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, su- tsunometer is probably, probably the correct way of saying that. Um, a tsunometer is a thing that detects changes in water pressure 
uh, way deep within the ocean and uh, can transmit that info via satellite to warning centers. It's it's a, a weighted anchor containing sensors attached via tether to a buoy on the surface that has, you know, a data crunching computer and transmission system. And it can give you a few hours of warning um, for tsunami activity. Oh, wow. Yeah. So super valuable. Of course, because, I mean, tsunamis can be especially devastating when you've got that wall of water. I don't know if you've ever seen video of what that looks like. It's absolutely terrifying. Oh, yeah. It's completely mind-blowing. Um, also mind-blowing, I find, um, it was basically readings from these early seismometers that led scientists to build the modern hypotheses of, of the makeup of the Earth. Uh, starting around like 1909 and then ranging up through the 1930s. That is when we figured out that the Earth has a solid core and molten stuff and a crust. And that is so recent. It's it's crazy to me. Like I had for some reason assumed that it happened in like the 1600s at some point. But nope, 1930s. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. So go seismology. Good job. That's just astonishing. Like that we had like relativity and quantum physics before we had... A full understanding of the of earth. the earth, right? Yeah, and, and you know, to be fair, you can't go that deep into the earth. Um, you it's... also can't go the speed of light, Lauren. <sighs> Maybe you can't, Joe. Oh, okay. Uh, but uh, so, so it's really cool, of course, that we were learning all of this stuff and and learning how to take measurements of earthquakes, but. Uh, how has all of this learning been applied in actually saving lives and preventing damage and predicting earthquakes? Well, I think one thing we should actually look at first before we talk about predicting earthquakes, because that's, a, as you will learn, quite a strange and iffy proposition. But we can at least talk about what we can do to our buildings and our cities to make them safer in the event of an earthquake. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are a bunch of different concepts of of material and construction engineering that can help us safeguard our stuff against getting super destroyed. Yeah, I remember I actually saw a headline a while back that was a it was a piece, I think, in the wake of a recent earthquake that said something along the lines of earthquakes don't kill people. Buildings do. Right. Right. That seems quite true to me. I mean, that if you're standing in the middle of a field in an earthquake, you're you're going to get knocked on your butt. But, you know, I mean, I mean, maybe if a fault in the earth opens up directly under your feet. Yeah, that would suck. Yeah. But but basically it just trips you. Sure. But when you come into real danger is when you are near a structurally unsound building that come toppling over and crush you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that is that is much worse than falling on your butt. On, on a galactic scale. <laughs> well, uh, so what are some of the answers that material science and construction engineering have given us? Uh, one of the classic ones is called base isolation. And this is super not a new idea. Um, there's evidence that Iranian architects or, or pre-Iranian architects, rather, and engineers were purposefully constructing buildings with seismic base isolation starting around like 550 BCE. So... 2,500 years ago, folks were working on this. Well, I don't know if I should be impressed because I don't know what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Base isolation is constructing two separate layers of a foundation for your building. The the layer against the ground is solid with the ground. And the the secondary layer between the first one and, and your building is solid with the building, but is capable of sliding against the lower foundation. Okay. Okay. Um, so if the ground shakes, the upper foundation and the building remain intact. Okay, I'm Makes following sense. you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, or I mean, like, like up to a certain point, I think that over like a eight on the Richter scale and you're just kind of screwed anyway. But yeah. um, but but this is really cool. Uh, archaeologists have found structures such as the, the Tomb of Cyrus that have been standing for over 2000 years, partially thanks to this type of structural safeguard safeguard. Well, how um, did they do it back then? I mean, if they didn't have like ball bearings and or whatever, I don't know what people would actually use today. Uh, g- giant loose slabs of rock is how they did it, basically. Um, like like <laughs> one giant slab of rock for the base and a, and a secondary unattached slab of rock for the secondary base. I can so. just imagine the ancient Persian conversation that like, <laughs> cre- you know, like you can't have just one slab. <laughs> <laughs> nope, nope, we need two slabs here. Because then your earthquake comes, and what are you going to do? You have an exposed Cyrus corpse. 
<laughs> that would just be rude. We don't. We can't have that. Um, modernly. Okay. Well, oh, sorry. I just want to update. I am impressed now. That's smart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it shows that they were thinking about it, and yeah. even thinking about it at that point in time was probably pretty impressive. Um, totally. Uh, modernly, a lot of buildings that are in in danger zones will use these uh, things called lead rubber bearing pads. Uh, between the, the solid foundation and the building. And, and these pads consist of a, a solid lead core that's wrapped in, in alternating layers of rubber and steel bands. So, vertically speaking, it's super solid. Um, horizontally, it's wibbly wobbly. Right. So it's not gonna get crushed, but it can shimmy. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, and a, a newish technology out of a Japanese company called Air Danshin Systems Incorporated um, can temporarily suspend a smaller structure li- like a private home on a cushion of air as a secondary foundation. Huh. Um, uh, they, they, they work by having these seismic sensors in the home's primary foundation detect a coming quake. And um, when that happens, a, a really powerful air compressor will activate and fill like an, like an airbag in the secondary foundation in less than a second. Um, and then, you know, when, when the sensors detect that the earthquake is over, the compressor switches off and the bag deflates, kind of bringing the home back down um, gently onto its first foundation. It's only lifting the structure like a little over an inch in mm-hmm. the air, maybe. So, But that can make a difference. But that can make a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a kind of inexpensive way, I suppose, of uh, conducting a base isolation on especially a, a small home. As of 2012, I read that the company was hoping to expand their systems for use in high rises, but I, I haven't been able to find anything more recent about what they've been doing. So well, I don't know. I hope l- they're out there. Yeah, good luck to them. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the things that I think is interesting is studying the way – that the ground actually transfers energy to buildings. Oh, yeah. Because that's really your problem, right? That you've got all this energy coming into a rigid structure, and how do you dissipate it? Uh, right. I mean, really, the, the damage that earthquakes cause is because of how efficient energy transfer is. Yeah. Uh, like, thanks a lot, physics. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but... but See, any, any given object has a re- resonant frequency or a group of resonant frequencies. And we've talked about that a little bit on the show before. Um, it means that when when the object vibrates, based on its, its size and its shape and the materials it's made of, it's going to resonate at this specific frequency or group of frequencies, as okay. the case may be. And it's really hard to get something to resonate at a non-resonant frequency. Um so if you if you put mechanical energy into an object the way that a seismic wave does, uh, it'll vibrate just as much as it can, like a whole bunch at its resonant frequency um, because energy is so efficient like that. Um, but what if you could get a structure to vibrate at a different frequency, at a lower frequency? Huh. Uh, but it's really hard to get an object to do that. It just wants to resonate at that one frequency, unless, of course, you physically change the object on the fly, which is also not really a thing that you want to do to a building or that it's <laughs> physically possible to do to a building. I mean, unless you're like Magneto or something like that. Um, so Wait, how could Magneto do that? You'd have to be something else, right? No, he could change the shape of a building by oh, like the shape. Okay. by by moving around the steel structures, okay. Okay. or you know, or he could take some of the metal out of it, put extra metal into it. You were so right. Okay, <laughs> I'm usually right about Magneto. Yeah. Um. So, but engineers who are not Magneto have come up with uh, various damper systems. One that's really great for skyscrapers is called a tuned mass damper, and. In the system, you, you suspend like a big old massive thing near the top of a skyscraper. Um, it can be held in place with like fluid cushions or hydraulics or springs or cables or some wacky combination of the above. And um, the, the mass and the, the hang of the system is tuned precisely to the resonant frequency of the building so that when an earthquake hits, uh, the building rocks one way and the system rocks in the opposite direction. Huh. Which, which helps reduce or kind of balance out the forces that are acting on the building, um, thus preventing damage. Okay, I can see. So it's like, it's almost like trying to create a canceling wave for a building. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, it's It's sort of like the noise canceling headphones of earthquakes. Yes. Yeah. 
Uh, and you can think about it if it if it helps with the visualization. It's sort of like a pendulum. Awesome. <laughs> um, another thing that engineers do to help uh, to to help prevent damage to buildings is by bracing. And it, it sounds pretty obvious, but uh, but but the way that they look at it is that since most of the ground's movement during an earthquake is lateral. Engineers can can compensate with incisive elements of strength and flexibility throughout a building that are designed to kind of spread the forces out evenly across the the vertical and the horizontal elements of the structure. Right. Um, and and things that help with that include like having parallel and symmetrical designs, using diagonal trusses against walls, and using uh, moment resisting frames, which are. Uh, Columns and beams that are bendy, but have connectors that are rigid, so that during an earthquake, um, the the whole the whole thing, the whole frame moves as a single right. piece. Those elastic elements absorb some of the energy, and they can dissipate it without causing the building to crack or something. Uh, right, right. It, it spreads the shock out across the entire structure, reducing damage to any one part. Or another interesting way to approach bracing that I read about was specifically directing the energy dissipation or sort of like the damage centric zone to a replaceable part of Ooh, the bracing structure. Like like a fuse. Yeah, that'd be something like uh, the fuses you might have in your house. Well, hopefully you have circuit breakers now, <laughs> but uh, a house that had fuses would have, you know, if a circuit gets overheated, well, it can just melt the fuse and that's fine. You can just change that out. You got a box full of them. Mm-hmm. And it's no big deal. But in 2009, a team led by researchers at Stanford University and the University of Illinois successfully tested a building protection design that would keep multi-story buildings from falling apart. And it would help return them to basically standing straight up upon the foundation after the shaking's over so that the building doesn't like remain a hazard and then maybe fall over afterwards. And they tested this design on a shake table, which is sort of what it sounds like. It's this (laughs) huge thing to simulate earthquakes. And it was shown that it was capable of withstanding earthquakes with a magnitude up to seven, which is a pretty serious earthquake. Yeah. But basically, these are steel frames that are designed to reinforce a building at the core or along the edge. And they dissipate the energy of the earthquake by rocking up and down within these cages at the foundations that they actually called shoes. They act like shoes. Huh, okay. And so running along the vertical length of the frames are steel cables or steel tendons, which are elastic. So you can think of that kind of like having a bunch of rubber bands or like those elastic stretcher cables holding your building in place and helping return it to an upright position right upon its rightful place on the foundation. Hmm, Uh uh-huh. But at the bottom of these frames, they had these things that they referred to as fuses. And basically the idea is that the fuses are the parts of the structure that will absorb the most energy and become damaged. And the fuses are designed to be replaceable. Oh, cool. So if there's an earthquake, it tries to channel the energy into this fuse area, which will be damaged and you'll have to replace it. But that's, you know, pretty easy to do. Cool. Uh, so, so these are all ways that we have of preventing damage in the case of an earthquake. But, but, but let's say that an earthquake does strike and damage is caused. Um, how, how are science and technology helping us better deal with the aftermath of earthquakes? Well, I know one of the things that is going on is something we talked about in our very recent episode about radar. Uh, yeah, yeah, the finder. Yeah. So just to revisit this concept briefly, it is a way of using radar technology to locate human beings trapped underneath rubble. Uh, yeah, uh, microwave radar specifically. And it, this is a radar so sensitive that it can detect the tiny palpitations of a human heartbeat through up to 20 feet of solid concrete or 30 feet of wreckage or 100 feet of open space. Wow. So that's a bunch. Um, and, uh, this is technology that I think was developed in, out of NASA and, and it, and it worked. And in the recent earthquake that happened in uh, Nepal in India in April of 2015, rescuers located at least four living victims, um, under 10 feet of rubble. So, uh, go team Doppler effect. That's yeah. awesome. Um, uh, other things that we have 
actually also touched on in the course of this uh, podcast include um, using like robots and drones for rescues where it is impractical or unsafe for human rescuers to go. Yeah, we've talked about uh, programming cockroach drones to find people in, in rubble. Oh, right, right. Um, and also smart infrastructure that can alert engineers uh as to when and where damage has been done so that hopefully before, you know, if, if a minor shock one year makes a crack somewhere in a foundation that could be a problem later, that's a thing that like a sensor could go, oh, hey, engineers, come come pay attention to me. And hopefully that gets repaired before a larger quake could bring the whole building down. That's what you call a smart city. Smart city. Smart buildings. <laughs> as opposed to all these dumb buildings we live in now. Oh, yeah. So dumb. But hey, wh- what about the big question? How about the elephant in the room? Can we predict earthquakes? Can we do it? Can we know when and where they're going to happen so that we can get people out of harm's way ahead of time? This is, I think, the the main thing everybody wants to know. Oh, of course. And s- should we just go ahead and say it? The answer is not really. Yeah. Yeah. C- certainly least, not right now. Yeah. Um. And and a lot of a lot of researchers are are doubtful that we ever will be. Yeah, the, um, the seismology community seems to at large be saying we'll probably never be able to determine this. Well, I mean, we're trying. Yeah. Um. Uh. Like with with earth, earthquake forecasting, which is uh, studying the history and, and the present configuration of a fault and predicting how likely seismic activity is in that area within a given period of time. Sure. Um, uh, but again, according to a lot of seismologists, it's impossible to forecast when earthquakes will happen, uh, given what we currently know about how earthquakes work. We, we haven't found a pattern, despite all of the data that we've been recording. Sure. And, and despite the fact that we can't say when, I, I think we do want to emphasize something you just said, which is true. We can, with some reasonable degree of accuracy, say where earthquakes are going to happen. Oh, yeah. And not just, I mean, like, obviously along the fault lines, but like along specific sections of a fault line. Yeah. So it's not necessarily going to be super specific, like telling you, you know, in this, the epicenter will be right here. But Mm -hmm. we can generally have a pretty good regionally based prediction about earthquakes. Unfortunately, the, the, the painful element of it is you just never really know exactly where or even roughly when. Mm hmm. And there's actually a good article in the Washington Post about this by the writer uh, Joel Aikenbach, who who talks about the frustration of scientists who sort of have this knowledge. Like he he talks about how the, the earthquake scientists predicted that Kathmandu would be you know would be vulnerable to an earthquake that something was coming there, mm-hmm. but they oh, couldn't which of course say it did. It, but... it did in April of this year, mm-hmm. and they couldn't say when. And then when it happens. It's just kind of this sense of frustration and like, well, I mean, we like, sort well, of we knew, knew but... and there wasn't that much that we could do about it because, I mean, you can't you you can't evacuate an entire population based on, well, probably sometime soon. Sure. I mean, unless you were just going to say, well, we just shouldn't have a city here. And <laughs> yeah. then on top of that, there there can be unknown fault lines in places that we're not even, you know, really privy to. Like there can be earthquakes in places that surprise us. They'll happen less often, Mm -hmm. but they will happen. Oh, sure. And and fault lines are not these, these straight, perfect map lines. Uh, They're, they're, they're very jagged and crooked and can, can go around to interesting new places that you didn't think that they would go. Sure. Yeah. One thing is that when you have an earthquake in one place, it can dissipate energy that, that puts stress on another part of the tech tectonic plate or another part of the fault line where you wouldn't have expected an earthquake before. And we won't necessarily know it's going to happen until it happens, though. It is worth saying that earthquake forecasting is a real thing. Like seismic cartography is sort of what you'd call it. You can make maps and say, based on what we know, earthquakes are more likely to happen in these places Mm -hmm. within a certain long given period of time. Right, right. Um, And and there are relatively early warning networks um, as digital communication technology has improved um, uh, seismologists have started constructing these these large networks of a whole bunch of highly sensitive seismometers that can automatically 
send out alerts, not just to researchers, but also to the general public, and therefore give a little bit more warning, uh, maybe seconds, maybe minutes before an earthquake strikes. Um, and that's, I mean, basically because seismic waves only travel about three miles per second tops, and information can, of course, travel a lot faster than that. Right. So um, your internet is faster than the earthquake. Yeah, yeah. Um, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Um and and it sounds like that's absolutely no time at all, but but it's plenty enough to save lives of, say, construction workers who are in precarious positions or of patients who are undergoing surgery or of, of people driving on the road. Um, and it also allows emergency responders time to begin to prepare. Hmm. Yeah, certainly. I mean, even if it's just having a siren go off or something that could potentially be useful. Oh, absolutely. But, of course, what people really want to know is – can we get much further ahead of the game? Mm-hmm. And one of the big things that often comes up when you hear people saying, no, I think we can predict earthquakes maybe weeks ahead of time is animals. Oh, right. Yeah. There are all of these kind of circumstantial reports of animal behavior changing dramatically a week or two before an earthquake. Yeah. People have reported this for years, uh, supposedly according to scores of anecdotes, fish, birds, rats, reptiles, I mean, whatever, all kinds of animals start acting super weird before a seismic event strikes. Uh, one early record is that the ancient Greeks reported that animals, including rats and snakes, deserted the city of Helice en masse before a huge earthquake destroyed it in the 4th century BCE. Oh, weird. But whether or not that's true, we, we would need to verify that it's a continuously occurring scientific phenomenon, not necessarily like just something that happened once. Uh, right, because, so, I mean, the behavior of, for example, rats and snakes is relatively ineffable. I mean, sometimes (laughs) they just do stuff. Yeah, sure. I mean, can animals really predict earthquakes well in advance? Number one, that would be a really useful fact if it were true. It would help us save lives. So it's worth studying. Unfortunately, this is one of those weird questions that's just really hard to answer. It seems to me, based on my reading, that generally most scientists are pretty skeptical about using animals to predict earthquakes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some researchers have claimed to discover links between animals and earthquakes, but the larger scientific community seems to remain pretty unconvinced. Uh, Unsurprisingly, one person who likes this idea is the biologist and parapsychologist Rupert Sheldrake. He's expressed fondness for the idea that animals can predict seismic activity, though if you know anything about this guy, Sheldrake is one of those interesting people who's very smart, but it seems to me just generally in favor of whatever ideas are opposed to the mainstream scientific establishment. Uh, So, you know, he's into paranormal phenomena (laughs) Uh and... He's the guy who promotes the concept of the morphic resonance, you know, uh, that like okay. m- matter has a memory and mm-hmm, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Uh, but there actually are some studies that we could look at. Like some people have claimed that animals might be using their extrasensory auditory capabilities to detect sounds outside the normal hearing range or something like that. Uh, and some of these claims are totally believable when they concern animals going nuts directly before an earthquake. But not so much weeks before, because if it's right before the earthquake strikes, that could be the same kind of thing we're talking about with these these uh, instruments. Digital sensors, yeah, sure. exactly. It could be the earliest four shocks, or just that first P wave that hits before the the subsequent shocks do. Mm-hmm. But I did find one recent study that's I think worth citing. Though I think I want to cite it with caution because it, it just came out pretty recently, and it's. One of those things that, I, I don't know, it, it just seems like we would definitely want to get some more studies of this kind before mm-hmm. we assign too much credit to it. Uh, but anyway, it was a March 2015 study in the journal Physics and Chemistry of the Earth Parts A, B, and C by Grant, Rollin, and Freund. And they claimed that disturbances in animal behavior were present in the weeks leading up to a 2011 earthquake in the Peruvian Andes. So here's what happened. They claimed that they used motion-triggered cameras in a national park in Peru to measure the extent of wildlife activity, like, you know, physical wildlife movement in the area. And they found that in the three weeks leading up to the earthquake, quote, Animal activity declined significantly, and there was even less activity in the final, like, seven days before the earthquake. Huh. 
Now, the author's explanation for the claimed reduction in animal behavior was really interesting. They suggested that it was another thing they measured concurrent with this reduction in activity, which was an increase in the positive airborne ion injection at the ground-to-air interface. So basically, the Earth injecting positively charged particles, positive ions, up into the air and this disturbing animal behaviors. And they were suggesting that this injection of positively charged ions into the air could be a result of some kind of preliminary earthquake precursor underground. Huh. Huh. Uh, So... So... Maybe. Uh, maybe. I mean, like I said, I want to stress caution with this kind of thing because uh, it seems to go against what we know so far. And it's it just came out recently. There mm-hmm. might be good reasons for thinking there could be problems with this study that we sure. haven't read about yet. Sure. Um, I, I did read another similar report that was published um, from the Open University in the UK via the Journal of Zoology back in 2010. And... Uh, they were reporting that five days before an earthquake stuck, struck Italy in 2009, 96% of the male toads in a population abandoned their breeding site. Uh, th- their normal behavior would have been to have uh, stayed through the spawning, but they just kind of up and left. And apparently um, this behavior coincided with ionosphere disruptions, although the, the cause of those disruptions was not discussed in the report or, or not reported in the report yes yeah I, I mean so i think that's very interesting but i guess we again we yeah. don't really know yeah I, two, but two reports does not make a appropriate sample for making scientific decisions uh sure but i i do think this that this is worth studying because oh, if yeah. there is any truth to the fact that animal behavior can predict earthquakes I mean, the scientists aren't suggesting that they have telepathy or something triggering the animal reactions. These triggers should be normal physical events that we could design instruments to look for. Oh, yeah. Um, one that I one possibility that I read about was emissions of radon from underground rock. Um, radon being a gaseous decay product of uranium, which gets trapped in rocks. Um, and the, the theory here goes that before an earthquake, kind of pre-movements un- underground break apart rocks and release radon up into the soil and water above. Um, since radon is radioactive and has a half-life of, of just like three to four days, um, it would be really a, a very useful metric to, to gather if, if a connection is in fact proven. But... Uh, no conclusive evidence has been found as of yet. So, You know what I'm really thinking is if we determine that animals can sense earthquakes and then we can use that to make an earthquake sensing machine mm-hmm. and then we can evacuate cities where earthquakes are going to happen before they happen, what's going to happen to the future of the earthquake disaster movie genre? Oh, man. They'll all have to be fabulous period pieces. Yeah. Oh, that's right. The Rock will have to put on like some like plaid and pretend to be some like <laughs> grunge guy from the '90s when there was an earthquake in uh-huh. California. Yeah, yeah. Or or like a like a toga of some kind, and so that he can run around in a ancient Greek or Roman city. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. While all the rats and snakes are fleeing. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and I would they'd watch be like, that movie. Oh, the wind in the caverns under the earth. <laughs> Where's it going to go? She's going to blow. It would have to be Paul Giamatti saying that, though. Right. Yeah. Where's the wind going to go? <laughs> that was my Paul Giamatti impression. That I, I'm not I'm not positive about the quality of either the movie that we are hypothesizing or of your Paul Giamatti impersonation. Well, I apologize. Oh, n- no, never apologize for Paul Giamatti impersonations. They're really they're all good. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, anyway, bringing it back a little bit. Well, I, I do think that this is really interesting. And even if it turns out to be the case, which a lot of seismologists think is the case, that we will never be able to predict earthquakes, we can at least make our cities better. We can make our buildings better. We can do a better job protecting ourselves mm-hmm. when the earthquakes do strike. And, and who knows, maybe one day we will find out that we can predict them ahead of time. Uh, yeah, yeah. And this isn't even for, for new cities alone. Uh, there are lots of ways that engineers are looking at for retrofitting buildings to make them stronger in places that we strongly suspect a quake will strike eventually. Yeah. So let's look at those seismographic maps and 
get to work. Yeah, yeah. Um, so thank you so much, Jacob and Matt, for, for writing in. This has been a fascinating thing to research. And we got to watch the San Andreas trailer a whole bunch. And that was endlessly entertaining. Uh, so uh, if, if any of you guys have any other questions that you would like to ask us or any other topics uh, you would like us to cover, please do let us know. You can find us via email. That's fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. You can go to our website, which is fwthinking.com, or you can contact us via Facebook, Twitter, or Google+. Our screen name in those places is some iteration of FW Thinking. You're smart people. I believe in you. And uh, I hope that you will believe in us again very soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You deserve to treat yourself, so turn your tax refund into a U-fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 4-14-24 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount.